Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 126 of the Speaking Club podcast. Ideas and jokes have a lot in common. Both are usually a new combination of existing things. Here's an example from instantshift.com. A man walks into a zoo. The only animal in there is a dog. It's a shit zoo. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, hey, thanks so much for joining me again on The Speaking Club. I hope you and your loved ones are staying well as we continue to navigate our way through these challenging but formative times. That's what I'm telling myself anyway. I have been having a blast over the last couple of weeks, helping the first people through my seven-day snackable story challenge. And it's been fab to see them discovering those rough story diamonds hidden away in their memories and getting them polished up and ready to share with their audiences online. And if you want to unearth your own gems to build your audience and create more leads, then do go and check out the challenge at saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge. It's completely free to do, and I've kept the daily tasks snackable too, so it's a no-brainer. I look forward to seeing you there. Okay, today I have a cracking episode for you. My guest is Frederick Haran, who is an international speaker on creativity and change, and the author of 10 books, including The Idea Book, which was included in the 100 Best Business Books of All Time. For the last two decades, Frederick has been travelling the world, interviewing people from all walks of life and professions to learn as much as he can about creativity. And they all sound like they're doing fascinating things. And he's also been praised for his speaking style and for being a master of making talks relevant and engaging for multinational audiences. And in this episode, we are going to be talking about the importance of creativity in your speaking and your business. And I promise you are going to pick up some brilliant tips for both. Rightio, let's get into this. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Frederick Heron. Thank you very much. Cool. I'm really interested to hear about your specialist subject, creativity. I know you've devoted quite a few years to it. And the first question I've got is what got you interested in creativity in the first place? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I normally say that it, I got the, uh, my first two books were, were about the internet. So I wrote the first two books about the internet in 1995 and 1998. And then I kind of transitioned from internet to creativity. So I guess the answer is the internet got me into creativity. But then when the, the more I've been saying that in interviews, I realized that I was actually interested in, in creativity much earlier than that. So the, the, the truth is that I have a, I have a twin brother. Oh. And uh, if, I'm, I'm going to guess you're not a twin. No, I'm not. I, yeah. My partner yeah. is a twin, but I'm not. Oh, ah, okay. Uh, identical twin or... or, or Very close, but non-identical. 
Ah, okay, right. So when you're identical twins, I like I like to define describe it as is one third yourself, one third uh, your sibling, and one one third your best friend. That's kind of like a, that's what it means to to take those three and combine it. That's how it is. So when you grow up as an identical twin, at least when I we grow up as identical twins, when you have an idea, you need to find someone else you can describe it to that hopefully understand what you're trying to communicate or you have to brainstorm in your own head. But I could like brainstorm with another person, but it was still like it was inside my head. Mm-hmm. And so that made it very, uh, the brainstorming very quick and very, uh, well, very creative. Like if I would we'd play a game and I said, I would say after one time, okay, let's change the rules. And then we change the rule like a hundred times. And he was always on board on it. So I, for, that was a very unique way. I didn't realize it, of course, like everything else, you don't realize when you grow up that that's not normal. But I realized later that that's not normal for most people. Most people are very alone in their creativity. Uh, and then they need to kind of convince other people why the idea was good. But I, was, I always had someone to share my ideas with. And I think that affected me a lot. Brilliant. And what and what was your what was your background in in the corporate? What did you have? Were you in IT as a job before you switched into speaking? Yeah. So so my speaking career is very unusual. So I, I don't have a, a background. I became a speaker. I, I went to university quite late. So I was in. I was when I was twenty seven. I was writing my university thesis. And that was on the internet and marketing. And I didn't even have time to finish because the internet was 1995. So the internet was just exploding. So I quit university and I, I became, I started an internet company, but at the same time, I also started speaking about, as so I was asked to speak about the internet. So I have been a professional speaker since I was 27. Wow. Okay, cool. That's uh, that's a, that's most people tend to get into it quite, quite a bit later. So that's, that's really yes. cool. Yeah. Okay. And I always, I always try to explain to people that, uh, that to be a speaker, you need to be an expert, but to be an expert, you just, it, it only means, to be an expert when it comes to, to speaking, it only means that you know more about the topic than the audience. So and when, at 1995, I had studied internet for 10 weeks, which means I knew 10 weeks more about the internet than like 99% of everyone in business in Sweden. So therefore I was allowed to go and speak about it. And since then I've been kind of trying to, to be 10, 10 weeks ahead of everyone else. And that's enough. <laughs> and I, only, I used this as an example for people who like, are getting started in speaking. So what, how can I, how can I, I'm not a world expert. I said, well, you can always find an audience that knows less about the topic than you do. So maybe you need, you need to start speaking for students in high schools or universities or something. Maybe you can, as long as you find an audience that doesn't know as much as you do, you have an audience and you're an expert for them. Yeah. And the same is true. And there's a lot of people that are, um, shifting businesses online and doing online courses and stuff. And I know that that sort of imposter syndrome around that side of things comes up. And I think the same is true of that in terms of teaching people things. You know, I mean, speaking is, you are teaching people, but actually doing an online course is a similar sort of thing. You need to be ahead of the people that you're teaching. It doesn't yeah. mean you have to be the world expert in it. So, yeah, absolutely right. Um I have people that are students that want to speak um, or want to particularly we focus on storytelling and and people don't feel that they're creative or they haven't got interesting things to share. So why, I was interested, you being a creativity expert, why do you think that so many people feel that they aren't creative? Yeah, that's also a very good question. So yes, a lot of the people who say that they are not creative are actually creative. They're, They're either humble or they're, they're, they are not aware, just like I wasn't aware when, when I was growing up, the, the thing, the, how me and my brother was coming up with ideas. I wasn't aware at the time. 
So a lot of it is, is ignorance about what you're doing. But I would go out and say that the reason so many people think they don't they feel they're not creative is because they are cowards. Can I say that? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, because it's a little bit like spe- going up and speaking on a, on a big stage. Uh, that's, a lot of people have that fear, but then it's not a rational fear. If you go up and ask people, what's the worst thing that can happen? There's nothing, there's not really nothing worse that can happen. They can laugh at you and that's it. It's, it's not like flying an airplane. With, uh, if you were a pilot, you can be scared of failing. I mean, if I was a pilot, I would be, I would be scared of, scared of fact. I don't want to have a bad, I don't want to have, I wouldn't, I actually applied to be a pilot when, when I was 18 years old. And I'm very happy I didn't get one because I know that I have bad days at work and I would not like to have a bad day at work when I'm a pilot. That, that you can be scared of, but speaking is, is nothing. And it, I would argue it's the same with creativity. What's the worst thing that can happen if you have an idea? But it's the same thing if that people laugh at you. Or, I mean, okay, you can say you invest all your, all your family savings in a, in a, or you borrow money from a Russian mob to start a company and you fail and, and he threatens to kill you. I mean, you can always go to the extreme, but for most people, the worst thing that can happen if they have, have an idea or they share an idea is that people laugh at them or, or ignore them. That's the worst thing that can happen, and people are afraid of that. So I would, I would, I, I haven't said this before, but I'm going to say it now. I think people should really uh, be much braver with with their ideas because there's there is really the worst case scenario is actually quite good. Cool, and there is something else that I've heard you say though. So. Um, which I was interested in, I think it applies to this section, which is you know, a lot of people think that creativity is, you know, you've been touched by the hand of God and that it's something innate and you either have it or you don't have it. And I, I saw you speak uh, and in one uh, gig you did that you said people are comparing themselves to Leonardo da Vinci. And this and it comes back to this sort of divine um, sort of gift that people think they need to have in that measure. And I think that's not true. That in, in your experience, is that is that true? We're comparing ourselves to, to you know, the wrong people or have this wrong idea about what creativity actually is. Well, okay, yeah. I used that example from, uh, from, a, uh, from a Korean, a South Korean. Uh, in, in, in some parts of Asia, they, they are very humble about their own creative abilities because they compare themselves to the, the best, most creative person who has ever lived. Mm-hmm. But actually, no, I know I don't think that's wrong. I, I think we should we should um, compare ourselves to to the best, and we should aim to be as creative as possible. So I don't I have no problem with that. Actually, I don't have no problem with people who say they are not creative. I I would I you can ask me on many days. Do you think that I am? I actually today was I was writing a Facebook post, and I was going to post. A lot of people think I'm the creative person in the family, but I'm not. It's my wife is the creative person because my wife today did. Uh, uh, she started writing messages with a pen, uh, a white pen on big leaves. We live in Singapore. So we have these huge leaves. And she write, started writing these messages like this, this too will pass and things like that. And with the kids. And then tomorrow they're going to go out and put those leaves on the, on the street because suddenly every, everyone is in lockdown and the only exercise we're allowed to do is to, is to walk or run. So our street is suddenly full of a lot of people who are running. So we're going to put these leaves on, this, on the road to just brighten the day of people. And I think that was such a creative idea uh, to do with the kids. Uh, and uh, so many times I would say that I'm not creative. I always say, a lot of times I get this in speeches. People say at the end, oh, Frederick, you're so creative. How do you blah, blah, and then whatever the question is. And I tell, you know what? Uh, 
don't make the don't make the conclusion that I am creative. And I do the I, I do the comparison. Like if I was writing books about soccer, does it mean I'm a good soccer player? Or if I write books about war, does it mean I'm a good a soldier? Not necessarily. It means I know a lot about soccer or football. It means I know a lot about war. It doesn't necessarily mean me, make me good at soccer. It just makes me fanatically interested in soccer. And, and I'm fanatically interested in creativity, but I would many days say that I don't think I'm creative, and it's okay, because the, the, the key here is that we shouldn't really compare ourselves to Leonardo da Vinci or anyone else. We can aim for it, but the only thing I care about is that I'm more creative today than I was yesterday. That's the only thing. I don't look at it as a competition between me and someone else. I just, that's the only way. Am I, did I grow? Did I learn to become more creative today than yesterday? And if you do it that way, uh, it's good to have that humble aspect of it and saying, I'm not there yet. And the saddest, I want to say one more thing. The saddest thing I find is not the people who don't say they think, who, who say they don't think they are creative. The saddest part to me is the people who say they are creative <laughs> and who are creative, but, uh, but are not trying to develop their creativity further. I like, let's, say, let's say basketball. If you have a tall basketball player, the saddest thing is a tall basketball player who doesn't practice or a, or a talented musician who doesn't practice. So the, the, the very creative people who don't push themselves to become more creative, that to me is the saddest, way more sad than the people who don't think they are creative. Because imagine what these people could do if they pushed themselves. That's interesting, isn't it? I guess that in some ways goes back to that old phrase, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So having the advantage of being tall uh, it means that they don't have to be as creative as someone who's shorter to, to, to make the baskets. That's, that's interesting. Um, yeah, but, that, but if, you're, if you're really good at basketball, all the great, all, 90% of all the great basketball players are tall. So it's not enough to be tall. You have to be tall and practice like crazy. That's yeah. how you become really, really good at basketball. And there are a lot of people who are super creative, but they, they kind of take it for granted. They don't, they, don't, they don't push themselves. And everyone says that, oh, wow, you're so creative. And they start to believe in that. And then I say, oh, I can do this with my left hand. But no, you, you should. That's great that you did this. But what could you be doing? Push yourself. Yeah. I think that's another interesting point. And, you, you, you know, I use the term, um, you use the term about how some days you don't feel creative and some days you, you do. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Because there are some techniques and stuff that you can learn to help your creativity come to the surface. But there are certainly days where you feel more creative than others. But yes. it's, it comes back to writers, doesn't it? You know, I, I, write, I write plays and some days it's really hard to face that blank piece of paper. But the, the people who are great writers right even when they're not feeling creative and I guess that kind of plays to what you're saying isn't it you have to push yourself to be creative even when you're not necessarily feeling it yes but on the other hand I've read a few books uh, around uh, famous writers and yes a lot of the great writers they force themselves to write every day but not all of them a lot of them also said you know what they wake up in the middle of the one day and say well today I don't feel like writing and they didn't write at all so there's no there's no I know one person in Sweden, he wrote, he wrote 15 every day, 15 minutes per day, he wrote his book. On, on a, he took a 45-minute lunch instead of a one-hour lunch, and he wrote for 15 minutes every day. I don't know how he did it. I, I, there are, uh, I have written 10, 10 books. I'm writing three books at the same time right now. 
And I can go weeks without writing a single word in my book. I can go months without writing a single word in my book. I just do research and I think and I take some notes. But then I, when I write my books, I go away for like 10, 11, 15, two, two weeks. And I go to a an, to an beach somewhere or an island somewhere. And I don't meet any other person. And I wake up at 7 and I work. I don't have breakfast. I, I write from morning. I have lunch at 12. And then I have dinner at 6. And I, I write to 11 in the evening. And I do that 7 to 11, 10 14 days in a row. And I've, when I'm done, I've written 80% of a book. Wow. But I, I can wake, I'm writing three books at the same time, but I can wake up day after day after day and say, you know what, I don't feel like writing today. And I'm, I don't. So you're very much, you need to be inspired or have it scheduled somewhere that is an inspiring place for you to be, to, to do the writing. Yes, but, but well, it's not that easy because when, when I do decide when I tell myself, okay, now I'm going to go away to a beach and write, suddenly then, then I am there. So if I wake up on day two and say, well, I'm not excited, I'm not motivated, I'm not inspired to write, uh, I don't take that day off. Then I sit down and write. But I, I, so it's more that I, I schedule a time for me to be inspired to write, but I don't expect to be writing every day. It doesn't right. work for me. I, anything that's routine kills me. I don't like routine. So for me to be forced to write every day would make it, uh, a, a routine task and that would kill my creativity so to me it means it has to be something that I look forward to going to sit on a beach for two weeks because my body thinks it's on vacation my brain <laughs> is working like crazy <laughs> like that that's cool excellent and then next question you mentioned the word idea I think already in the conversation and I'm curious to know how you would define what an idea is Yes, my, I have a, a classic definition. I, I always share this. My definition of an idea is that a person takes previous, two previously known things and combines them in a new way. That's my definition. And I like that definition. I like that definition because it's, it's much less of a, it's much less, like you were saying before, it's less magical, it's less uh, mystical. It's very simple. Take two things that you know, take two, look at two, um, right now I'm looking at a, as a, a, a pink, cat mask that my daughter put on my desk for some reason and my iphone and then i said okay what if i take the pink mask and and combine it with an iphone what can i do well i could make a a, a soft pink cat folder for my iphone okay so that's an idea so every single idea in, in the history of mankind is a combination of things gin and tonic became gin and tonic so uh, uh, and there's there's never been and i do that sometimes in speeches i tell people give me one example of one idea that's not the combination of already existing things and i'll give you a thousand dollars and no one has ever been able to beat me i can i challenge you now. i challenge you too now <laughs> just <laughs> okay uh I'm just trying to think of it of something. Um, so, uh, what about I know the th first thing that popped in my head? Play-Doh. What, oh, what is Play-Doh? Play-Doh is uh, the, oh the toy. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, Play-Doh. Okay, so what is Play-Doh? Play-Doh is is clay. Well, I don't know what is made of plastic. I have no idea. I'm, I'm yeah, thinking I'm gonna guess more it's clay. Something about plastic. Yeah. So I'm going to say it's clay and plastic combined. And it's also, it's also the idea of, of, of molding. I, I, you, you create something clay and then it's, it's, it's a child's toy because of the color, the, the bright color. So you take a child's toy and combine it with pottery and now you have Play-Doh. Cool. That's a good, good example. Good example. Mm. And, and the other thing that you, you say is that 
It's about combining knowledge and information to create something new. And the hardest thing is about combining those two things. What, why do you think that's so hard? And, um, well, okay, so, so my definition uh, is that you take, you take two things and combine them. So basically you take knowledge and you take information and you combine it. That, so, so, and because a lot of people put, put some kind, they think that creativity is to ignore knowledge and just come up with something new. And they say, mm-hmm. no, it's the opposite. You need to have knowledge and you need to have information. And that's how you become more creative. And, that, and by the more knowledge you have and the more information you have, the more potential you have to be creative. But it's not, it's not the person with the most knowledge and the most information who has the best ideas. It's the skill is to have knowledge and information and then combine it in unexpected ways that we haven't seen before. So that it's, uh, getting knowledge is, is uh, we've been taught for 12, 15 years in school how to get knowledge. And information, we always learn how to get information, but we haven't really been taught how to combine uh, the information and knowledge that we have. So it's, I don't think it's the hardest. I, it's, it's the most important part of the creative process. And, and it's, it's something we're not so good at because we haven't practiced that so much. We practice knowledge in, in information, uh, knowledge gathering and information gathering much more than we practice knowledge and information combining. And do you think there's an element of us getting in our own way around this sort of stuff, sort of second guessing ourselves, imposter syndrome, you know, and undermining our ideas before we've even given birth to them. Do you think that's a factor? Um, yes and no. I think the okay. So yes, the, the fear of, of failure is a big is, a, is, a, is something that a lot of people have, as we talked about. But I always do this when I try to explain to creativity: you need to have the doubt. The the, the most the con the most Confident people are not the most creative people because the confident people think they are right, and creative. And you need to be confident to be creative, like because creativity. Everyone is 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 zigging. Everyone is going to to the left, and you are going to go to the right. You won't do that unless you are confident. So you have to be confident. Say, I don't. Everyone goes to the left. Well, screw them. I'm going to go to the right. But creative people are not always think that they are wrong. Because they always say, well, there must, there might be a different way. Like a, a writer, you're never happy with your text, or almost never happy, because there might be a better way of doing it. And you rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. So if you're very confident about something when you write a text, and you write a text, and okay, I'm done with it. This is perfect. But no, a good writer rewrites and rewrites and rewrites. So you need to be confident and doubting at the same time. That's the sweet spot for creativity. So confidently doubting or doubtfully confident is what we should aim for. So I don't want to get away of the doubt. Doubt is, is beautiful. We need, we need to always be doubting. But when it takes over and we, and we, and we get the self-doubt to kill our own creativity, then, it's too, then we are too much to, the, to that side. When we're too confident, well, then, uh, then we are too much on that side. You need to be in the middle. It's a, it's a balancing act. Cool, I, I get you. So, if yeah, that sounds that sort of. I've got my head like a metronome, and you need to be keeping yeah. it right in the middle. I like, it's like that. A, what do you call that? A thin. What do you want? Walking the thin line. Yeah. Like you you walk, you're walking and you and you're constantly balancing. So I I always do that. If I like, even as a speaker, if I'm if I'm too confident for as about my own abilities to, to be a speaker, then I, I will, I try to go back and, and get some negative feedback or something. So I start doubting myself. Yeah. yeah that's cool. That's cool. And to, you, know, you mentioned that we kind of don't practice enough being creative. 
Does that mm. lead into, you, I, heard, I heard you use a term called idea perception. Can you tell me what that is and why do you think if it is so important right now? Okay, so yes, idea perception is, the, is a specific kind of creativity. It's your ability to see how the world is changing. So it's, it's the ability to see change, understand change, uh, realize what you need to do and then do it. It's, like, it's four phases. Mm. And I, I used to do the example of Donald Trump when I gave speeches. So like, when did, you, when did you realize that Donald Trump was actually had a chance of winning? And when did you realize that, that if, he da- if he wins, the stock market is going to go up, not down? Because everyone thought it was going, going to go down. And then you have to say, well, if, the stock, if Donald Trump wins, the stock market will go up. Then I should buy stocks. And then you should have bought stock. If you did all of those things... You made a lot of money for the first couple of years that Donald Trump was president. But now a much better example is the coronavirus, because mm. this is so easy to say to yourself, when did you say to yourself, this is going to be a, a global pandemic? Like, when did you start to realize that there's a, there's a virus and it's going to affect the world economy? And then when you say, well, if, if this, that means a lot of, of, a lot of industries are going to suffer. And if they suffer, the stock market is going to go down. And if the stock market, I should sell my stock. It's good. A good, a good example of idea perception is when did you sell your stocks? Because then that's, that's the, if you have good idea perception, then you react faster than everyone else. But you need to see the right, you need to understand the change. A lot of times, like with the Donald Trump example, a lot of people didn't think he was going to win. Some people thought he was going to win, but those people thought the stock market, stock market would go down. But it, it went up, so it, you need to get it right, and it's very, very tricky. I mean, it's it's literally reading the future, isn't it? Mm. I think I must be very poor at idea perception, certainly in relation to this coronavirus. Every time I've thought, oh, we might need that, that would be a good idea. It's all sold out. Everyone's already bought it. I'm like, yeah. it's a good job I'm not trying to, you know, those people that have sort of read the situation, exactly what you're talking about, read the situation, you know, about, you know, exercise is going to become more, more uh, important to us. And it's just amazing, those people. There are people who are, have seen, read the situation, have got ahead mm. of the opportunity and, uh, and uh, making the most of it. But uh, that wasn't me. It's an important aspect of creativity, especially in times of, of change, which yeah. obviously the last couple of years, or the last few months especially, has been a lot of change. So if the world is not changing, we don't need to be very good at idea, idea perception. But if the world is changing, we, it's like if the road is turning. If the road is straight, we don't need to be good at turning. But if the road is, is, is very curvy, then we need to be good at turn, turning as well. Basically, you need to turn, you need to see the, the turn coming and you just start turning before it, you run over the hill. Well, I think this cliff. is, they, I mean, they do say that change is the only thing that you can count on. So essentially this is vital because nothing stands still. And I guess, you know, you've got to be constantly aware of what could happen, you know, not nervous about it, but, you know, looking at that horizon scanning to see what might affect you or your business or, or whatever. I think it's, it's pretty important um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Now, one of the things that fascinated me is that you've been all over the world interviewing creative people, mm-hmm. and of all of the people that you've met, who do you think is the most creative person you've met so far? I've been curious that's, about that. Uh, yeah, that's a great question, but it's a little bit like asking who's your favorite child, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a really fair question. It's really, no, I, I can't say it. I, 
uh, I, I just I can tell you yesterday I did my last interview yesterday. So now yes, I did travel around the world like um, like a like a maniac more or less. I was in 24 countries last year alone, and I go and interview all kinds of people from Mongolia, you know, the nomads of Mongolia to people in Silicon Valley. So that that's kind of my thing. But now I do it on Skype, which is a, or a Zoom, which is great. So just yesterday I interviewed Frank Stevenson who is the designer who designed the new Mini and he, McLaren, and he was the head of design at Ferrari. And uh, like he, he's, he's most like one of the biggest car designers in the world who has ever lived. And I spent two hours interviewing him about curiosity. And it was a fascinating conversation. And, and I, I, would say he, I would say him, but that's just because I interviewed him <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and and how do you how do you find these people? How, do, what sort of process do you use and criteria do you use to decide who who are these creative people that you're going to interview? I, well, I try to get a mix. So I I do have an assistant who helps me because it takes a lot of time to to, to send out find emails, find mm-hmm. the email addresses and, and and contact and put dates and all of this. But she sends me a long list of people that she finds, or I send her people that I find, and. Uh, and then I, if she sends me the list, I will pick from the ones that she has sent. But the thing is that, uh, so I try to get a mix. So tomorrow I'm going to interview uh, an Israeli uh, cartoonist who does uh, an internet cartoon. You might have seen it. It's, uh, it's about a, a couple. Uh, I forgot the name right now on top of my head, but it's a very funny cartoon. And uh, so, so in it can be a cartoonist or it can be a car designer or it can be head of innovation at KPMG or it can be anything, really, mm. really anything. So uh, a, a sculpture in Hong Kong or whatever. Uh, it, it, I like the mix. Yeah. So a flamenco dancer, for example. I interview a flamenco dancer in, in Barcelona. But So the classical creative the, uh, area, so culture and art and so on. But I also like to interview, yeah, like an accountant or a head of a... I haven't done, I interviewed the head of the Malaysia Central Bank, right? or the world champion in squash, or can we learn about creativity from a squash player? <laughs> I call myself the creativity explorer, and to explore means to venture into unknown territory in order to learn more about it. So that's what I do. I go and try to learn more about human creativity by going and interviewing people who are normally not interviewed about their creativity. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I, I saw you use an accountant as a, an example of someone who maybe doesn't think they're creative. I think c- accountants often are very creative. Oh, no. I've done a lot of work for accountants, and they all think they are super creative, <laughs> and they need to be. They need to be creative. Just going to say, yeah, yeah. Excellent. The more I study, the more I study the topic, the more I realize that human creativity is much, much, much more of a broader more complex thing than what we have. We, li- we have limited our view on creativity when we all only think about it as cu- culture and art and Silicon Valley. It's much more than that. I interviewed like a, a, a sushi chef in Tokyo or a, yeah, all, all kinds of people. And it's, it's much, much more interesting to find those nuggets uh, and find the, the difference because they're all, they're all slightly different approaches to creativity. And you realize creativity is not one thing. There's many, 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 many different things. I love that. That's really cool. Mm. And um, I mean, we're going to talk about where people can find out more about you at the end, but those, those interviews, they're on YouTube, aren't they? Uh, yes, they are. Cool. Okay. Well, we'll signpost to where people can find those at the end. So the next thing I wanted to ask is having met all these people and, 
and sort of study creativity for so long. What are the biggest things you've learned about the creative process from, from the people you've met and the, the things that you've found out? Yeah, so one of the books I'm reading right now, I mean, not reading, writing. One of the books I'm writing right now is going to be about the creative process. So the, the thing I have learned is a little bit of a meta answer maybe, but the thing I've learned is that there's so many aspects of the creative process that we we don't know about or that we haven't understood enough. It's kind of like how we sometimes, you know how we, in science now, when we, for the longest time we studied, we studied only the, the, we only did experiments on men. So we didn't really understand the female body because we just did studies on men. And suddenly we started doing experiments on both men and women. Suddenly we, we found out much more about the human, human beings because now we studied women as well. And I, I, th I think that we have, there's so many aspects. I use this, this example of flow, you know, the book flow classic. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Mikhail, Mikhail, um, yeah, oh, I was going to get you to say it. Yeah, because I can't say, I can never Chiksit say it. Mahali. Chiksit yeah, there Mahali. Go. There we Good go. Job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So flow has already, always existed, of course. It's been there for hundreds, thousands of years, but we never had a name for it. And then he wrote a book and suddenly we know, we can now talk about flow. And that mm -hmm. means our understanding and and our grasp around flow has, has suddenly become much more, um, we're much more aware of flow because there's a word for it. Mm. But there's so many other aspects of the creative process that are similar to that, that, that exist, but we don't have a word for it. So I'm trying to put words on all of those uh, other aspects of the creative process, which is, uh, and I'm finding quite a few actually. So it's a really, really interesting process. God, that sounds interesting. Yeah. And I've got something to test with you. One of my beliefs, and it, and it sort of underpins all the work that I do, because some people would say, I'm a creative person. And um, you know that back to that sort of gift thing but one of my beliefs around creativity is that it comes from having some systems and processes in place um, because uh, you know like painters that there are th there are foundations and principles and rules that you need to learn in order to so I guess it comes back to your combining ideas to be creative it comes from from some form from some structure do you subscribe to that as well uh, well, yes, yes, and no. For some people, it's super important, and for some people, it's not important at all. But that's a great example. So, one of the people I interviewed, his name is Sebastian Sebastian Rostenberg, I think. He's a, he's a, he makes jingles for advertising, so he composes music that ends up in advertising. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, what we in our discussion we we came up about the concept of the moment of nothing which is, I find, so beautiful. So the moment is of nothing. So he described his creative process. when he, He's supposed to write music for an ad. And then he gets all, he gets the, he gets the ad. I mean, they've, they've shot the ad already. So he gets the ad, he gets the brief, he meets the client, he sets up his piano, he, 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 he puts in the computer, he does all the preparation. He, does, he, he studies it. He, and then he's supposed to start playing, you know, start to create the music. But right before he presses, right before he presses the first key, that's the moment of nothing, where all the preparations have been done, but none of the creativity has happened. There's for like a tenth of a second where we go from preparation mode to creation mode. There's one tenth of a second there, like almost like a pendulum, where it goes all the way to the one side and then it stands still for a second and then it goes back. 
that's the moment of nothing. And he said, in that moment, everything is possible and, and nothing has been created. And, and so now when you're aware of like, oh, now I'm in the moment of nothing, he, you take a deep breath and then he presses the first key and now he's in creation mode. So, and that I think is a good description of the, of the two steps, the preparation phase and then the creation phase. And this goes back to your definition of, of being cowardly, because that moment of nothing, you know, I think if you, if you have done anything like written a book or written a play or done you know, stand up, anything like that, written a, a, a talk, there, that moment of nothing is that leap of faith, that jumping off a cliff. You know, that's yes. why we spend so much time researching and pre- sort of preparing. But that's the scariest part, isn't it? And that's what where most people or, or a lot of people get stopped that I've seen. I don't know if you, if you feel that way too. Yes, and, and, and but it's exactly that feeling. It's like I, I've, I've tried parachuting like two times. Yeah. And that's like when you, right when you jump out of the plane, before you start falling, you're actually just outside the plane, but you haven't fallen yet. That's the same. It's a moment of nothing. It's the same feeling. You're, you're right before you let go of the plane. Yeah. So, so it is a scary, he, Sebastian, he, he, he talked about it like that. It's a very, very scary mm-hmm. moment, but at the same time, it's full of endless opportunities because yeah. you, can't, you haven't failed yet. If, if, if it's a painting, it's the most beautiful painting ever, but you haven't put a single thing on the, on the canvas yet. But being aware of that moment makes it just, it kind of, from since then, and since I had that discussion with him, every time I get into the moment of nothing, I just pause and just acknowledge it and just take a deep breath in. And then, and I think a lot of times when you look about what we do that subconsciously, like we write, we open up a Word document and then we're going to start writing. And just before we start, we just do take a deep breath and then, okay, now I'm going to write. So we all we are aware of this moment of nothing. We just didn't have a word for it. Now we have a word for it. Yeah, and I guess it goes back to uh, Susan Jeffers' book: "Feels the feel, feel the fear and do it anyway." And that's that's often the difference between success and failure is the people that actually commit and go, and the ones that stop and don't start. So uh, yeah, yes. that's really cool. Okay. And the fear, but the fear can be always. The fear can be before you even start. Like should I even? Yeah. Should I even read? Should I even research this book at all? Is, it, mm-hmm. is, is no one going to write it? So, so the fear is it can be throughout the whole process. It can also be all the way up to when you launch it, yes. the, the, and, and uh, or it can actually be even even after you launched it. But it, it can also be. I, I just did, one of the last interviews I did was in in Romania with a very successful YouTuber. He has ten percent of the Romanian population following him on, on YouTube. Wow! He, he does these funny YouTube videos. But he talked about the, the Frankenstein moment. And the Frankenstein moment is because he became so successful doing these funny videos. But then he said, like, um, I, wanted, I don't want to do these funny videos anymore. I want to do like more documentaries and car videos. And like that. But, but his audience didn't want that. They wanted him to just continue to be these clown videos that he was doing. And then he tried to do the ones he wanted to do. But people like started giving him negative, negative comments and thumbs down and everything. And he's like, oh, then I maybe I should go back and do this. And suddenly he was... It was like he was doing this thing that the idea became so successful, it took over. He was, instead of him riding the horse, the horse was riding him. And, and uh, it, was, it was a terrible, it, it was a terrible feeling because he didn't want to do that. He was, had to force himself to, to push himself out of that and, and start creating what he actually wanted to do, even if that meant losing a lot of followers and getting a lot of negative feedback and so on. So the, the fear can even come after success, which I find very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And and did he stick with it doing the new stuff? 
Oh yeah, yeah. But oh, okay. but yeah, yeah. He he's, he. But that's what we, that was the discussion we had was yeah. the, the 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 power, the, the courage to leave a successful like the law happens to a lot of artists and like they they they, they do a great album and suddenly they expect all the albums to be like the Beatles are famous for, for, for doing one kind of music and then saying, you know what, I'm, I'm sick of this now. We're going to do different kind of music uh, or late or Madonna just kind of said, you know what, I'm going to try something new or Lady yeah. Gaga or whatever. Right. Sometimes just try new things, but some painters like they do something, I don't know, with a dot and then suddenly that becomes a huge success for the rest of their career. <laughs> they make dots because that's what sells, but they might be sick and tired of that dot. And their soul is dying day by day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> With every dot. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And it's the, it's the saddest of sad when it comes to when the cre- creative success is not what fuels you. It's like Frankenstein takes over you. Yeah. That's why it's called the Frankenstein moment. Oh, it's interesting. I'm oh, looking forward to um, hearing you finding some of these definitions when your book comes out. Yes. Um, cool. And so based on, on, on everything that you've learned, everything you've done, I wondered if you could share three things and we may have it may be a question of sort of reiterating some of the things that we've discussed but three things that people can do to kickstart their creativity particularly in in speaking in this instance oh okay specifically okay kickstart kickstart their creativity okay so when it comes to speaking i I always i this is a mantra to me when i speak to speakers is that they need to find their inner theme the inner theme is what what makes them pursue this idea oh sorry that's a gecko if you heard it <laughs> oh yes cool <laughs> excellent it's nice to have yeah. them. i might not see one for a while so yes it's cool <laughs> you usually don't see them you just hear them <laughs> yes so the inner theme is what drives you to speak like what, what's the message so uh, my inner theme is humanity to the power of ideas i believe in the power of the, the potential of humanity and the power of human creativity. So humani- humanity to the power of ideas well, is what drives me, is who I am. Everything I do, from writing a book about the internet to growing up with my twin brother to writing a book about creativity or, or interviewing a guy, a YouTuber in Romania, it's always humanity to the power of ideas. And I have helped hundreds of speakers find their inner theme. And my experience is that almost no one knows it. I'm, I'm amazed almost 99% of speakers, 99% of people don't know their inner theme. And just like a company needs to have their values and their mission statement and vision statement, not only defined, but perfectly refined, we also need the same thing as as humans. And when a company gets that right, like Nike, just do it, it, mm. it can go on for thirty. Nike's been doing just do it for thirty-two years, I think now, mm. because it fits so perfectly to what Nike is and what it stands for. And when a person can find the same kind of an inner theme that drives them, uh, it's not the topic they speak on necessarily. It's something. It's much deeper than that. Something profound. It's like who you are. Your life slogan. Mm. Uh, yeah, if it's you like find the golden that, thread. That goes through everything. It's a red thread that goes through your yeah, that yeah. get goes through your whole life from childhood up to what you plan, how you want to be remember a legacy. Mm. If you get that right, and then also be able to kind of put that into a slogan, a phrase that just kind of like just do it feels perfect for you. And it's a, I always is I say it like it's a message that everyone needs to hear, but you only you can deliver. That mm. that's uh, everyone can. Everyone needs to hear about the of the potential of human creativity, so humanity to the power of ideas. But only I can speak about it because no other person has studied creativity on a global scale as much as I have. I mean, 
arguably, but I mean, we're, we're, we're 10 people maybe in the world who, who have, I've studied creativity in 70 countries. I've done it for 20 years. I've interviewed thousands of people from all walks of life, all kinds of cultures. There are very few people who've done that. So I can speak about human creativity on a, on a level that almost no one else can. Yeah, cool. Okay, so find your inner theme. Yes. Anything else that you can, can share to help people kickstart that sort of either ideas or their creativity? Yeah, but then I think it's, it's so a lot of people say around creativity, like nothing is new under the sun, which is in a way true. But because when I said my definition of creativity is that you take two things and combine them. So technically that is true, but you need to find it's, it's that thing of it's that way of finding a niche mm. that is slightly different at least sounds different from what everyone else. I love like I love the idea of the people who wrote um, Blue Ocean Strategy. If you remember that book, yeah, they, the Red Ocean and Blue Ocean, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so they took this idea of you. You have basically the message that you you have to be different from your competitor. Mm. There's nothing new. They, people have been saying that for two thousand years, but suddenly they just rephrased it. There's a blue ocean and there's a red ocean, and everyone just said. Wow, every CEO could say, we need to find our blue ocean. We cannot be stuck in a red ocean. It became, like, it became a mantra like 10, 15 years ago. Uh, there was nothing new with that message, but it, it, became, it, became, uh, it felt new. Yeah. Uh, so this idea of taking, an, oh, most likely, unless you're speaking about, uh, I don't know, COVID reactions, something that's brand new right now. But even if you speak about, speak about leadership, you have to have an angle on leadership that feels fresh and new. Uh, or package in a way that and then I, I i find it's the same thing there i think so many speakers are not putting enough effort on trying to find that twist mm. yeah absolutely you have to find a way to differentiate yourself and and uh i i've heard uh recent recently this sort of as the purple ocean so you need to find something that is kind of in demand in the red ocean but is is blue enough so it's kind of like a purpley so that you know that there's going to be demand for it but you have your own new take on it so that that's kind of where where i i've been thinking myself it's kind of yeah. a nice halfway point so yeah, um, I, I i always i always find that the most interesting speaking topics is the topics where 50 percent of the audience feel that the topic you speak on is not new yeah. Because they feel like I started speaking about the internet in 1995, right? So mm-hmm. when I did that, there was always some people in the audience said, well, internet is not new. It's been around since 1960. I, I got the email in 1988. This is nothing new. <laughs> and then the other group, 50% says, well, uh, the, the internet is like only three, this is never going to happen. It's like 50 years left. And the internet is just for techies. So only 3% have internet. It, my mother will never have internet. And like, so, so half of the audience thinks that you're too early and half of the audience thinks you're too late. That's the perfect time to write a book because everyone disagrees with you for totally different reasons. Okay, cool. That's brilliant. Thank you for sharing those. Now, you are, as we talked about, a professional global speaker. And one of the things that you're known for is making your talks resonate with multinational audiences. And I wondered if you could share some of the tips on how you achieve this when you're putting your talks together. Yes. So yes, that's a big thing for me because there is this mantra that we ask, if you speak, you need to customize the speech for the audience. So so how do you speak for Asians or, or, because I've been, I am from Sweden. I used to live in the U S but now I've been living in Asia for 15 years. And a lot of people from the West, they fly into Asia and then they come to, to me and they say, okay, I'm going to speak in Asia for the first time. I heard Asian people are not very interactive. 
So what, what should I do? And I said, well, if you come with that mindset, they are not going to be interactive because you already assume that they're not. It's like teachers. You do this test in schools where they bring in, they, they bring in a new teacher to a class and they say, oh, this, this, all the kids are brilliant. This is the best class ever. And then they do the same, same class, but different teacher. And then they say, oh, this, this is a problem, problematic class. They're all stupid. And the teacher will then uh, approach the class as if they are smart or stupid students. So if you approach Asian people and say, oh, they don't do interactions, then you will think that they don't. And people will come here and say things like, yeah, I know you're not Asian, so I'm not going to ask you a question, but maybe you can talk in groups. And, and you, you treat a group like that, they won't interact. Uh, I don't think this is true. I think, I think there's much, there are much bigger differences between industries than there are between nations. And, and, and that doesn't mean there are not differences. But... For, because when I, when I speak, I speak very often at international conferences and global conferences. And suddenly, you know, the Ernst & Young Tax Symposium, 2,500 people from 48 countries, from Asia, Europe, Australia, and America. Now, how am I supposed to do this speech now? So the only way you can do that is that you do a speech that is, works on everyone, which means a human speech. And that means you play on human emotions because as different as we are, uh, we all, we, at, the, at the core, we're all the same. We love, we laugh, uh, we cry, we are afraid, we, we care for, like, these are human emotions. And on that, I, in, my, in my book, I, I talk about, there's this quote from Michael Jackson when he was going around the world and, and uh, he got the question, so how, is, how is it to, comp to, to uh, perform in all these different countries? Like you go to Australia, then you go to Japan. And he said, ah, oh, it's the same thing. They, they cry at the same place, they laugh at the same place, they, they scream at the same place, and it's true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, there, these, these things are called universal themes. We've, I've, I, I did a, an episode on this, I'll put it in the show notes as well, as well as sort of pointing them to, to, to your book, but it's, there are these universal themes, and if you can hook into those, it really makes your talk more appealing to a much wider audience people can yes. can feel themselves in your talk more more easily if you use yeah. these things cool and the good thing if then 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 that that will work on the german it will work on the american mm. and it will work on the indian and it will work on the chinese so it's great but then if you go to china it's 100 percent chinese people in their own in the room it will still work yeah so so that so i always try to make my my speeches universal i think this speech should work on anyone everywhere and and then you can do the same, more or less the same speech everywhere. Yeah, I can I can't remember exactly the quote, but there's I think it's something like there's more that binds us together than that makes us different as human beings, and it's just picking those things and 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 using those. So yeah, that's really yeah. cool. Thank you. Now I also know that you use storytelling and humor in your talks, and I'm a massive advocate for these. And I just wondered if you could say how important you think they are in inspiring your audience and particularly around the things we've talked about just then and, and also getting booked for gigs. So, yes. So I am, I am a, I'm a storytelling kind of a speaker. I, I tell, I tell, I tell interesting or funny stories and, and usually my, almost all my speeches are just stories more or less, but they, with a message, of course, mm. and and the, yes, they are they are funny. They are uh, in a in a Swedish way, I guess. We use Swedish humor, I guess, <laughs> which is a very universal humor that works around the world for some reason. I don't know. It's a Swedish chef, maybe, or something. <laughs> uh, so I'm a, I'm a huge, uh, but 
But having said that, I, I, yes, I think everyone, I think, of course, I think we should have humor in speeches and I think they should be storytelling. But the best speakers I've ever seen in my life, and I've seen thousands of, I mean, I've done 2,000 speeches, which means I most likely have heard 5,000 speakers or something, because I tend to always stay, stay for the whole day. Most of them, of course, have not been great professional speakers. Most of them are CEOs or whatever, but I've heard a lot of speakers in my day. And the best, if I would do a top 10 list of speakers I've heard, the common denominator, where 50% of them made, I would say, made me cry. Mm. So I think the ability to, and I cannot make an audience cry. I've done 2,000 speeches. I think I made them cry 10 times. I don't, I don't go for crying I, I, because I don't tell stories that make me cry or them cry. But if you do, you're, you're very, very most likely you're going to be extremely successful because it's a very powerful tool. Mm. I wouldn't be afraid of using uh, seriousness and uh, seriousness and and darkness and sadness in speeches, if, if that is your message or part of your message, or even, even if it's not, the best speakers are the ones who can balance this, where you, where you, you cry and then two minutes later you're laughing. That's mm. an emotion, emotional roller coasters are, are, uh, uh, the, can be amazing speeches. But do you think, in terms of evoking that emotion, I, in my experience of, of seeing speakers, it's through the stories that they tell that the emotion comes about um, rather yes. than data and statistics. It, it, that's, that's your experience. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, storytelling, for sure. That part, mm. I'm with you 100%. Mm. But stories, sometimes stories that make you cry is oh, yeah. better than stories that make you laugh if, 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 <laughs> if the message is, is, uh, is, is the right message, of course. Yeah. yeah my, cool. Yes. So, you, so is it an intentional decision that you don't want to, to do it, or do you feel that you... Um, can't do it or it doesn't lend itself to your topic that you don't use emotional stories in your talks? I think that I, maybe it's not imposter syndrome, but it's, uh, it's that I feel that if I would do that, I would feel like I was playing on those emotions that I was trying to use as a, is I know it's not what you're trying to do, but I would feel like I was because yeah. I, I would feel like I was cheating almost by doing that. I did. I did. I've done one speech because my son was diagnosed with autism. So I've, I've, and he and it's a funny. It's a it's, it's a funny story because he he came out of it. He was he's now doesn't have autism anymore. So it's it's a, the story has a happy ending. But I, I I've done that speech a couple of times and then. I do that. So the first part is that, that people don't think, they think I tell the first part, which is a sad story. And then I do the twist where it ends up with a happy ending. And of course, that, that is a great, that's a perfect storytelling because it, it, they think that they feel, they feel it's ter terrible and so on. And then, oh, wow, it, a happy ending. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. But I always feel a bit uh, like I'm cheating because I know it's a happy ending at the end. And I feel like I'm, 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 I'm tricking them when I tell that story. But that's just because that's not my that's not my storytelling style yet, to do mm. deep emotional stories. I I am the I'm the it's like uh, I tell I tell funny stories. That's that's who I am. Yeah, no, it's an, it's important. You know, the other thing we often talk about on here is your persona and being authentic. And and you've got to find your persona as a speaker, and that's that's your persona. So it, yeah. if it doesn't align with your persona, it doesn't. It won't feel comfortable, and it won't feel. It won't. You know, you won't feel um, 
confident doing it either. So cool. No, that's that that's great. Well, listen, Frederick, thank you so much for sharing all that stuff. Now I have some standard questions to ask before we shift into talking about how people can find out more about you. And the first uh, question is, what what is the best thing that speaking has done for you? Mm, there's so so many. I would say there's actually so many, many. There's so many different ways. It's the best job in the world. So it's so many different things. It's hard to rank. I would say give me so much time. Uh, it's everything from giving me so much time with my kids when they are young to... Uh, meeting so many interesting people and having ex- having an excuse to 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 do deep level interviews with people and and get to know get paid to learn about what I want to learn about and to spread a message to people and change people's lives and like this the list is endless. There's <laughs> lots of positives, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and I, I always ask this question because I think it's important for people to see that we we do have good days and bad days um do you is there a worst gig that you've had is there one that you just like try to erase from your memory <laughs> yes of course if you that's why i said i'm happy i'm not a pilot because i have i have bombed a few times for sure <laughs> <laughs> if if that was a if that was a flight i would have i would have crashed a plane yes definitely <laughs> and, and is, is there one particular example that you have that people people you can tell well, yes, I, I can share i have never shared this with anyone actually i was saving it for when i was going to speak at some speaker association but i can share it with you if it's okay yeah brilliant um, yeah so i did a speech i was invited to do a speech for uh, a chicken company in <laughs> uh, in an asian country so they were basically chicken farmers and they had a one-day one day workshop with all the top managers. And uh, I was there to, right before lunch, give them some you know, positive energy, uh, inspiration, because they've been going through the numbers the whole morning and going to continue the whole afternoon. So I was there like an entertainer on, and think new things and then go back to the numbers. I start my speech and then it's going great. It's a two-hour session, so it goes great. But after 20 minutes, one guy comes in, and he looks like a truck driver. So I thought, he, like, maybe he's the head of a factory or, like, a factory worker or something. And he goes, he's 20 minutes late. He just hasn't been there during the, the, the earlier day. He just comes in now. So, like, who the hell is this guy? And he sits in the back, and uh, about 20 minutes into the speech, he says, uh, so what's the point of this? <laughs> I go, oh, okay. Uh, Maybe, uh, sorry, I know you came late. So, you know, there's a, I explained what we're going to do, but uh, I just trust, this, trust the system. It, you, know, you can evaluate this uh, when we're done. So, uh, and this, you know, if there's a point to this, don't worry. So, and then about five minutes later, he goes, this is totally meaningless. What the hell is this? And no one, and no one is saying anything. Everyone, the CEO is sitting in the front, the HR manager is sitting in front, no one says anything. And like, what is it? Normally, if you have a heckler, the audience yeah. kind of goes with you, right? Yeah. <laughs> or they go with a heckler if you've been, if, you've been if, if you screwed up. I mean, if somebody insult, if a stand-up comedian insults someone, then the audience will go together with the audience. Here, they do nothing. They just they disappear. Everyone just disappears. It's like, what the hell is going on? And then, if, uh, and then it goes on like for it starts, and then it goes on a like five-minute rant why why my speech is totally meaningless and why and and I just stand there. I don't know what to do. I kind of look at the CEO and HR, and, and then after another five minutes of being totally being being scolded by this guy, the CEO stands up and says, "This is now we're like forty-five minutes into the two-hour session." The CEO goes up and says, 
thank you very much, Frederick. I think that's enough. You can go now. <laughs> okay, so I left. And it turns out it was, it was the owner of the company. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. No. And, and he had flown. They didn't know he was going to attend. So, and he had flown in with his helicopter and he was apparently drunk. And, and he had no clue what the idea was. He thought they were going to go through the numbers, which they had been doing all day and were going to continue to do all day. But for right that two sessions, he wasn't aware of what was going on, basically. And he, they were obviously afraid of him uh, for, for, the, uh, for obvious reasons when I, when I think about it. But they were very happy. The client was very happy. And they said, you know, so sorry, so sorry. I was going to say, I hope they apologized. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. they, they apologized and they paid the full fee and everything. But I went and had the massage and I went and <laughs> while, I, while I was being paid for, <laughs> for not working. <laughs> oh, that, fair that, that's, not even the, that's not even the worst story. So I have worse stories than that too. But those, those I don't share on, on the open internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that one. Um, sure. Okay, next question. What is... The one book you've read that's had most impact on your life and why? Okay, so I read very little books actually because I'm, a, I'm I have a terrible memory and I'm afraid that if I read some book and pick up a story somehow maybe that story would have come from a book and then I'm reciting a, a book on on stage and someone says well that come from that book so I try to not read books on my topic mm-hmm. right just to save myself from that. Mm-hmm. Having said that though I've I'm going to say that I read a book on, I think it's called Lateral Thinking by Edward de Bono. And we were on a trip, on a school trip from, in university and uh, from Stockholm or from Växjö in Sweden down to Brussels for, we just drove down. And I was reading that book and it totally just got me into, oh, so you can actually write books and study creativity. Then I kind of didn't know that before that. And, that book had a really big impact on, on me having this idea that you could actually study the concept of creativity and write books about it and everything. So that had it, I think that book is most likely the book that has kind of influenced me the most on, from what we're talking about now. Cool. And what's the best piece of business advice you've ever had and why? Like I said, I have terrible memory. Absolutely terrible memory. <laughs> I guess, uh, well, okay. My first, when I was, when I, my first job straight out of university, I was, um, was in a small internet agency that had, I was an employee number one. Oh. And after about six months, they asked me if I wanted to buy, buy 10% of the company for $1. And uh and they suggested that I do that. And I, so, of course, I did. And then I bought another 10% for a few more dollars. So I ended up with 20% of the company. And we grew that to 60 people. And we sold it in December 99, which was, which was just before the dot-com boom and it, or bust. And it was an internet company. So that was a very, very good decision to, to listen to their, to their advice. It wasn't a very big risk because I risked like $1. But it was a very good advice to take to buy that, those shares. So, so, so that would be if if someone offers you shares in an internet company for a dollar, make sure you you take it. That's basically what you're saying. If that ever happens these days, I'm not sure. Yeah, but but you know, my my father was a musician and my mother my mother was a teacher. This whole idea of becoming an entrepreneur, I I'm very I'm not very I'm 
When I went to university, was 1990s. We just came out of a bad financial crisis in Sweden. And for many people, the the, the, the thing you wanted was a stable job. Like mm. the, in my class, the best the, there was one guy who got an internship in in the the, the Telia, which is the big telecom operator, and he he got an internship in Telia, and everyone was so envious of him because he got a the big job in Telia. And I started in a company where there were like three people and me, and everyone was like, "Why are you taking this job at this small company when you can work for a big company?" And I was almost I almost didn't take it, and I almost. The whole idea of buying that, I mean, of course, you got a, it was not a financial, it was more like, am I willing to invest the next five years, five, 10 years in this company and build it to something when I was 27 years old? Or should I, should I go and build a career somewhere? So it, it was, it sounds like a simple decision, but it wasn't. Because yeah. it was it was me investing, uh, believing in, in in the internet, which was nothing at the time, and believing in these guys and believing in my potential of building something that would be worth something. So it it was a it was a much bigger decision than than it sounds like. It sounds like you had good idea perception back then. I as did well. <laughs> exactly. I I pride myself of having good idea perception, but idea perception is is all. It's remember it's, it's seeing it's seeing the idea, it's understanding it. Uh, it's understanding what you need to do, but you also need to do it. And I'm yeah. I'm bad at the last part. I'm, I'm I'm good at seeing things. I'm seeing them early and understanding what they mean. I'm not so good at doing the last thing that me that what I need to do to to thrive on the insight that I've had. That's what I need to practice on. Okay. Good. And if you if you fail on that, it, it's not enough to see that Donald Trump is going to win and and stocks are going to go up and realize that you should buy stocks now, you also need to buy those stocks. So, you know, yeah. if, you, if you fail on one of the four, you're, you're still... <laughs> Excellent. Okay, last, last question. If you could have one mentor, alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Oh, okay. So I don't like this story. <laughs> Most people don't. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like those questions because uh, you always end up with Gandhi or, or or Nelson Mandela or something like that or so uh or all right but uh you know what okay so I'm gonna go for the cliche then though and then I'm gonna go with Buddha I think okay yeah but more from a rhetorical point of view I think like it's when it comes to like the whole what we've been talking about speaking messaging inner themes uh creativity, all of those things. So from the perspective of what we've been talking about, that guy, that guy was really good at going inside and finding the true meaning of things and then communicated that to other people. So yeah, I don't think you can beat that. Excellent. Well, I like that. That's, and I don't think we've had Buddha. So we've okay, had the good. Dalai Lama. We haven't had yeah. Buddha. So, okay. so you are new uh, in okay, this good. realm. Smashing. <laughs> cool. Now, Frederick, I know that you have a book on speaking. Could you share what the title of the book is? Because I know you've written a lot, but specifically of interest to the audience, this this might be one that's that's you know they're particularly interested in. What's yes, the title the, of that? The book is called "How to Become a Global Keynote Speaker: Spread Your Message, See the World." Perfect. Okay, and I mean we can't go through. Is there any other of your uh, eleven books that you would point people in a direction in specifically? Well, my my big book, the 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 one that has sold uh, by far the most, uh, more than two hundred thousand copies, and it was included in the hundred best business books of all time, 
that's book, the book that's called the idea book. So that's my big book, the idea book. And that's, I, I, I highly recommend for people who want to be more creative because it's 63 different exercises to help you become more creative. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy and proud of that book. Perfect. And I'll put uh, links in the show notes to, to both of those. And if people want to find out more about you, book you to speak, it may be online now for a little while, but uh, yeah. and if they want to find out more, where's the best place for them to go? Yes, well, they can Google the Creativity Explorer or Frederick Heron. There's only one Frederick Heron in the world. And, or um, it's easy because the podcast, theworldofcreativity.com is, okay. is easy to remember or professionalspeaking.com is easy to remember. There's a few ways to find me. Okay, cool. We'll put them in the show notes too. And are you on social media as well? I'm very, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and on Facebook, but Facebook, I reach my maximum. So I would recommend LinkedIn. That's the best way. I post all kinds of stuff there, both speaking and creativity content. So Smashing. yeah, Frederick Karen on LinkedIn is by far the best. Smashing. Well, listen, Frederick, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Really appreciate everything that you've shared today. And it's been a fascinating conversation for me as well. So yes, I really appreciate thank you. it. Cool. Thank you. And Fun. You, you stay safe. <laughs> yes, you too. I really enjoyed that. I, you know, I love learning about creativity and hearing stories. And that was fabulously well combined. But two things there that were aha moments for me were the realization that you have to have confidence and doubt together to create excellence. And I also particularly liked the idea of the moment of nothingness that's sandwiched between the research and the creation. I shall remember to pause and acknowledge that when I'm creating uh, from now on. I hope you enjoyed the show too and have your own takeaways to help you move your speaking and your business forward. Do go and check out Frederick's stuff and also go and connect with him on LinkedIn. Thank you so much again for joining me. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could do two things for me. Firstly, leave a rating or review for The Speaking Club on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening. And then secondly, share it with someone who you think would benefit. I'm on a mission to help people speak their truth and change more lives through great speaking and storytelling. And this podcast is a big part of that. Okay, so you have a fabulous week. Look after yourself, but don't forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. Snackable stories are short, powerful, engaging and very shareable. Because of all that, they are great to use in Facebook Lives, podcasts, videos, keynotes, webinars, blogs. In fact, everywhere to share your message, build your audience and grow your business. The trouble is that finding your snackable stories and confidently sharing them can feel like a struggle for many online entrepreneurs, authors, experts and coaches. And that struggle can slow you down or stop you in your tracks. That's where my seven-day snackable story challenge comes in. Because over the course of just seven days, I'm going to give you resources and training that will not only build your skills and confidence, but will get you a tangible result at the end and assets for you to use going forward. And the best bit is that all of it is completely free. To find out more, including if you meet the criteria to participate, then go to saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge right now.